Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Thursday, November 7, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. In this talk, Richard Brookheiser, in conversation with Akil Amar, discusses essential written works from the past 400 years that have forged American identity. Good evening. Uh, it's a, a great honor and, and personal pleasure, a treat, to be here with one of my heroes, uh, Rick Brookheiser. I've, I've admired him uh, ever since uh, uh, the first time I, I saw him. It was my very first week at Yale College. I just turned 18 um, that week uh, and uh, listened to Rick hold forth in the Yale Political Union, and I've been following his words ever since. Um, and uh, his latest is, as you've heard, this book, Give Me Liberty. It's a history of America's exceptional idea, it's an, and it's dedicated to the American people. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a bigger, it's, it's, it's slender, it has your trademark pith and wit uh, and incisiveness, but it's also a big book in a way because most history books don't try to take on such a broad sweep of time. Um, talk a little bit about the, choice that you, the choices that went into the basic framing of, of the project. Right. Um, I, I'm making an argument in this book. I, I'm saying that the characteristic of American nationalism is our concern with liberty. That's the thing that makes us not Canada, not Mexico, not, not whatever. And this has been going on a long time. It, it began before we were a country. Uh, it began in our colonial past. So uh, in this book, I take 13 episodes, each of which produces a document of some kind. And the first one is 1619 in Jamestown. And the most recent one uh, is 1987 in Berlin when President Reagan gives his tear down this wall speech. So that's not quite 400 years, but it's four centuries of concern with this concept of liberty, defining it, sometimes fighting for it, um, enouncing it. And um, you know, I, I, three of the three of the episodes are colonial. They are, they are before, uh, before our independence, before the Declaration of Independence, because uh, this um, concern of ours goes back that far. You have, to, you have to trace it back that far to begin to get a grasp on it. Now, um, you won't be surprised, I, I, I expect, to, to learn that there are 13 different episodes, uh, a freighted number. Um, you describe them as snapshots in an an album, a, a marital album, uh, uh, over the, uh, these 400 years. And we can't do all 13, probably, in the, in the time we have today. So since this is the New York Historical Society, we're going to focus on the New York aspects of your story. But 
Why don't you just, before we, we focus in on that line, tell us what the 13 episodes are, if you can, it's a test. Sure. Can you do all 13? <laughs> okay, the 13 are, uh, the first is the minutes of the first meeting of the General Assembly at Jamestown, the Jamestown Colony in 1619. Number two is the Flushing Remonstrance, 1657. Number three is the trial and particularly the argument to the jury at the trial of John Peter Zanger in 1735. Number four, the Declaration of Independence. Number five is the Constitution of the New York Manumission Society. That's 1785. Uh, number uh, six is the Constitution, 1787. Number seven is the Monroe Doctrine, which is 1823. Number eight is the Seneca Falls uh, Declaration of Sentiments, 1848. Next is the Gettysburg Address, 1863. Next is the New Colossus, which is written for the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty. And, and I pair the two. The poem has to be seen along with the statue, but the poem is written in 1883. The next is the Cross of Gold Speech, 1896. Uh, the penultimate one is the Fireside Chat on the Arsenal of Democracy, 1940. And the last, as I said, is the Tear Down This Wall Speech, Berlin, 1987. Okay, that was well done. 13 out of 13. <laughs> so uh, so um, we're not going to talk about 1619 in Jamestown, um, but we are going to talk about something that, I'll be honest with you, I had never even heard of before um, uh, you helped uh, teach me about it, the Flushing Remonstrance. What the heck is that? Well, this is when New York is still New Netherland. Uh, it's, it's still a Dutch colony, and it is being governed by the man who turns out to be its last governor, Peter Stuyvesant. Uh, I live um, down on 16th Street and 3rd Avenue near, near Stuyvesant Park, and they have this splendid statue of Peter Stuyvesant. And it really captures the man's personality. He looks vigorous. He looks energetic. He has, of course, a wooden leg. He lost it in Holland's wars against Spain. And he looks like you wouldn't want to cross this guy. I mean, he he's very much uh, wants to be in charge of everything. And although he did a lot of New good, Yorkers can be like that. Well, you know, he kind of reminded me a little of Rudy Giuliani. You know? <laughs> Um, so, somewhat crazy, but also very effective. Uh, despite all the good he did uh, for, for New Netherland, he was a bigot. Uh, he was a Dutch Calvinist. His father had been a minister, and uh, he wanted to uh, impose that on his domain here in New Netherland. Uh, he tried to throw out Lutherans and Jews at different points, but because there were Lutheran and Jewish investors and directors in the Dutch West Indies Company, which employed him, uh, he was told to back off and, and let them alone. Then he decided to pick on Quakers. And there were no Quakers uh, on the directors of the Dutch West India Company, so he had a free hand for a while. And Quakers then were an extremely countercultural religion. Uh, they did not recognize rank. Uh, they, they would not doff their hats. Um, they used the same forms of address for everybody. They let men and women preach equally because they believed everyone had access to the inner light. And so this made them 
you know, this made them very, very peculiar and um, threatening, certainly to Peter Stuyvesant. So they start appearing in New Netherlands, and he, you know, he handles them in various ways. He expels a couple of them. He, he almost whips to death another one. And then he decides, okay, we can't have any of them in here. We're just not going to let them in at all. Any ship that comes in with them, uh, find, we're going to send it back. Anyone here who harbors one in his house, that will be a crime. You cannot let a Quaker in your house. He promulgates this. And then 30 men in Flushing, which then is now, is the same place it is now, and that was part of his domain, they send him a remonstrance, a public letter, and they tell him, we cannot obey this order of yours. And they say, it's for religious reasons. Uh, we would do unto other men as we would have other men do unto us, and this is the law of, of church and state. This is what God and the prophets tell us to do. And they send this letter to him. It's a, a remarkable stand for freedom of conscience. And what moves me most about this, you can, you can find this online. Six of them couldn't sign their names. They didn't know how to spell their own names, so they made marks. But they laid down a marker. You know, they were standing up to this guy, and, and he leaned on them. He had them arrested. He brought in the guy who was the actual scribe of the document, a man named Edward Hart. The Dutch kept very good records. So we have the record of his interrogation of Edward Hart. You know, and it's like, who told you to write this? Uh, no one told me to write this. Well, how did you come to write it? I, I was just listening to the sentiments of the people. Where did they express their sentiments? No place in particular. Where did you write this? Well, it wasn't so-and-so's house. I mean, it, it, it is an interrogation. I mean, no beating up of him, no torture, but it is really an interrogation. And he made them all crack. He did make them all crack. But Quakers continued to come in, in defiance of his order. Um, he decided to send one to Amsterdam to be tried. You know, he wasn't going to do it here. He was going to send him across the ocean. And then finally, his bosses, even though there were no Quakers among them, decided, lay off these people too. You know, they said to him, we don't like Quakers any more than you do, but we want population. So if they're willing to come in, fine, let them come in. And he finally does back off. So speaking of thin-skinned people running uh, New York, like <laughs> you, men you mentioned Rudy Giuliani, the next one is the trial of John Peter Zenger. And we have now another thin-skinned uh, person, uh, now the governor, the uh, royal governor. Royal governor. English. English royal governor. Okay, yes. uh, so tell us the story. Uh, and this is going to be a different Hamilton, I think. Yes, than a the different one, Hamilton. Than the one they've heard you talk about before. That's right. Um, the, the English, uh, of course, conquer New Amsterdam in 1664. And then in the, in the 18th century, we've had a series of royal governors who have been sent over. Some of them are worse than others. Uh, the New York Historical Society owns a portrait of, of one of them in woman's dress because he allegedly... Speaking of, Rudy Giuliani is Saturday Night Live, by the way, but just, <laughs> just saying. This man would allegedly lurk on the street corners at night and tug men's ears in women's dress. And, <laughs> and um, this picture depicts him 
uh, in, in drag, although it's probably a forgery done, done by um, a hoax done by his enemies, political enemies. But there was another man, William Cosby, uh, who becomes governor of New York because he married the daughter of an earl. And when he gets his appointment, it takes him six months uh, to get over here from, from England. And during that time, uh, the job of governor was, was filled by a, a substitute. So when Cosby arrives, he says, well, uh, you owe me my back salary for these six months that I wasn't here. Um, they don't want to pay him. It, it goes before the local court, uh, presided over by a man named Lewis Morris. He's the judge of the local Supreme Court, rules against Cosby. So Cosby fires Morris and puts in Morris's place a much younger man uh, of the last name of Delancey, as in, as in the street. Um, down on the Lower East Side. And what Morris does to fight back is he hires an immigrant named John Peter Zanger, German, German immigrant, to start a newspaper. And newspaper culture has already started in the 13 colonies. Uh, there are the Franklin brothers have started a newspaper in Boston, James and Benjamin, later much more famous than his older brother. Uh, every significant town along the coast has one newspaper, at least one newspaper. Now New York has two, because the previous one was the official one. It would print all the official notices and laws and whatnot, and obviously was in the pocket of whoever the governor was. But now there's a rival one, the Weekly Journal, and for a year it campaigns against Governor Cosby, rarely mentioning him. But, you know, talking about arbitrary power and what a terrible thing that is. Um, they run bogus ads. There's an ad for a missing spaniel, and that's supposed to be one of Cosby's supporters. You know, <laughs> spaniels are very affectionate, loyal dogs. Uh, and, you know, Cosby doesn't like this. So he finally, uh, on his own say-so, he has Zanger arrested. He has issues of the newspaper burned. And he does grant him a trial. So... Zenger's supporters hire from out of town the best lawyer at that time in British North America, who is a man named Andrew Hamilton. No relation to Alexander, but he's a, he's a lawyer in Philadelphia who comes up to defend uh, his client. Now, you know, a, as a law professor, you'd be very interested in the courtroom drama here because the law, the relevant law, is the law of seditious libel which at the time, it was a recognized law in, in Anglo-American law, and it criminalized criticism of rulers on the grounds that that could cause violence and upheaval and rebellion. And we obviously, we don't want that, so therefore we will not permit criticism of rulers. And that is the law of the land, both in England and in, in its colonies. So what Hamilton does, and it's a brilliant performance, he's basically asking for jury nullification. He's asking for the jury to ignore the law. Now, he can't say that. And there are times when Judge Delancey pulls him up short, you know, won't let him make a certain argument. And what Hamilton always does, he's twice as old as Delancey. I mean, he knows his way around a courtroom. And so he will, you know, apologize. And then he'll make the same argument later in a slightly different form. I mean, it, it's a brilliant performance, and it's also a very eloquent performance. He's saying, what other recourse do freemen have if they're being misruled? They have to have the right to complain. 
because how else can anything be redressed if nobody knows what it is and, and nobody can talk about it? And if you don't allow this, the only alternative you're allowing is, is revolution. And he mentions uh, the overthrow of the Roman kingdom by, uh, by the first Brutus. Uh, he mentions the English Civil War. But, but he keeps coming back to this point that the right to complain, to oppose and expose misrule, is something that every free man has. Mm -hmm. And the jury agrees with him. Uh, they leave the box for uh, a very short time. They come back, these, these 12 ordinary New Yorkers. Uh, I give their names. Uh, it's an impressive group. We've never heard of any of them. Uh, but, they, but they, again, like the men of Flushing, they stood up and they acquit Zenger. And the effect of this is that colonial governors will not bring actions for seditious libel after this because no jury is going to bring in a conviction. So the effect is that the press in colonial America will be the freest in the world. So this is in the 1730s. 1735. And one of the things about your book, since you said you mentioned the names, you do that throughout. You want us to know these names. And, 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 and some are recognizable but today, but many are not. Now here's a name you mentioned before. You mentioned the name of Lewis Morris. Um, right, he's the backer. He's Zanger's backer. Uh, now, the next chapter isn't really completely a New York story. It happens down in Philly, the Declaration of Independence. But in my copy of the Declaration of Independence, since I look at the names and you got them, there's a Lewis Morris there. So, same guy? Grandson. Grandson. Okay. And there's going to be another family connection soon enough that you're going yes. to tell us about. Yes. Okay. Um, so, um, we are going to pass over the Declaration of Independence. Um, you focus especially on the ode to liberty in, in the Declaration of Independence. And there are other aspects of it as well. It uh, declares independence, for example, um, which has international law significance and all the rest. But we'll, we'll jump over that because we can't do everything. So you're just going to have to read the chapter for yourself to get his views on the Declaration of Independence. Um, but now let's leapfrog to the Constitution, not of the United States yet, but the Constitution of the New York, and it's even hyphenated like the New York Historical Society, the New York Manumission Society. What's up with that? Well, some of the chapters in this book are about filling gaps because, you know, I argue that this concern with liberty is centuries long and it's central to our experience, but of course we've also violated it in numerous ways, and we've had to correct those violations over the course of our history. And the largest, uh, most inflamed, because it issued it finally in a civil war, most painful was chattel slavery, human chattel slavery. And I, I wanted to do a chapter on a northern state because we forget that this, was, this wasn't just a southern thing. Uh, New York was a slave colony, and it was a slave state after independence. Uh, I learned in writing this book that New York City had more slaves than any American city except Charleston. Now, that's partly a function of our size. We, we had become the largest city, but still, that's a, that is a startling uh, and, and shameful statistic. So after the revolution, there 
there was um, a scandalous event where some free blacks living in New York were about to be lured aboard a ship and taken either to Charleston or to the Bay of Honduras, where a lot of slave trading went on. Uh, and New York and, and other uh, free towns were prey to man-stealers or blackbirders, they were also called. These were people looking for runaway slaves, but if they couldn't find a runaway slave, they might uh, try and pick up some, some free blacks and carry them off into slavery. So uh, the authorities had stopped this. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a scandalous event. And so there was a meeting in New York of an interesting combination of people. There was the elite of the city and of the state. Uh, governor George Clinton was part of this. He's the first post-independence governor. Mayor James Duane, first post-independence mayor. John Jay, the great, the great diplomat and patriot. And a young Arivist joining these ranks, Alexander <laughs> Hamilton, who'd had a very good war, been on Washington's staff, and you can see the musical. But, these men, but these men were also working with New York's Quakers, who, um, who appear several times in this book, and they're always, uh, they're always on the outs. They're always outsiders, and by their own choice, because their own religious vision is so radical, and, and to what extent should they participate in what the rest of the world is doing? This is an ongoing debate within, within the Quaker community. But at this moment, the two of them see a common interest in trying to rectify New York's situation with respect to, to slavery. They feel that, that this is a violation of the principles of the revolution, uh, for which some of these men have fought, not the Quakers, obviously, but, but people like, like Hamilton did, and they want to set New York on the path of manumission. Uh, so they, wrote a, they write the, a constitution which is very eloquent. It, it resembles uh, the, the famous opening of the Declaration of Independence. It's much more explicitly religious. I mean, Jefferson talked about the laws of nature and nature's God. Uh, the Constitution of the New York Manumission Society speaks of the benevolent creator and father of men. You know, this is not a philosopher's God. This, this is the father of men. And it says it is our duty as citizens and as Christians, you know, not only to sympathize with the condition of, of black people in New York, but to actively work so that they can enjoy the same rights as ourselves, that these, our brethren, can enjoy the same rights as ourselves. So, so this is a very sweeping statement. Now, many of the members of this society owned slaves. They owned slaves. But they were willing to put themselves on record and to go to work to try and end this institution. Um, over time, they did it in various ways. They, they passed, they lobbied for certain laws such as no slave in New York can be sold outside the state, nor can any slave be brought into the state. Uh, there were a number of slaves who belonged to Tories during the war, and the state had confiscated them. So they said they should all be freed. They also established a system of schools for black children because they felt that ignorance made them a prey to man-stealers and blackbirders. So they started off with schools for boys, and then they added uh, girls were allowed a few years later. And these were ultimately folded into the public 
school system in the 19th century. And then the final result is uh, John Jay, who was the first president of the society. He's elected governor in, at the end of the 1790s. And in 1799, he signs a bill which will end slavery in New York by 1827. It's a long time. You know, it's a long time. And I think, you know, when people, people reading about this who come to it the first time, they may say, well, they were really dragging their heels, weren't they? But the other side of it is they got it done. They got it done. And this was something that was in the culture of this state. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to get it out. And someone has to do it. You know, you can't just say, well, over time, it'll go away. You got you to push. You got to work. And that's what they did. And in 1827, finally, when, when, when the last slaves in New York are free on July 4th, and I end the chapter with yet another Hamilton, a man named William Hamilton, who was a black man, uh, a self-trained journalist, founded a church in the city, and he wrote this uh, eloquent uh, essay about the end of slavery in New York in which he praises the Manumission Society as being the, the engine, the main engine of this process. And let me introduce for the audience one very important conceptual distinction between manumission or emancipation, the freeing of individual slaves, which goes back to antiquity. Virtually all societies prior to 1776 had um, some sorts of, of human unfreedom, and they had regimes of, of, of manumission or emancipation. See, a funny thing happened on the way to the Forum or something like that. But, but actually, it's the Americans uh, that developed the idea of abolishing slavery itself, abolition, as distinct from uh, merely freeing slaves. And so you go from a manumission society to ultimately um, abolition. It may not free right. that many uh, existing slaves for a, a long time, but eventually there will be they're all, no they're all slavery free. at all, ever. Right. Um, one final thing, since you mentioned John Jay, and he's the governor who signs this law, um, this uh, um, gradual uh, abolition law um, uh, bill into, into law, and he's the president of the Manumission Society, he's so opposed to slavery you tell us that he buys some slaves. What's up with that? Well, he, uh, his explanation is that when they work off their price, they will be freed. Sounds odd to us. Uh, I would also, maybe in his defense, say that he tried to get anti-slavery language in New York State's first constitution during the revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, he helped write it. He failed in this respect. And then three years later, he wrote, until we do this, our prayers to heaven for liberty will be impious. Mm -hmm. So that, that's a pretty hard saying. So the next chapter is a different constitution, the Constitution of the United States. It's, uh, much of it is not quite a New York story in that in the drafting of the Constitution, Robert Yates and, and Robert Lansing basically uh, defect. They, at a certain point, leaving New York really without a, a vote. There's Alexander Hamilton left. He can talk, but he can't really cast a vote on behalf of, of, of New York. Um, but... Uh, there is a New York angle. We're going to move quickly because there's more New York uh, uh, stories, but, 
but there's another Morris who comes into the picture, and you've written a little bit about him. Yes, there's my some, favorite. Some connection to the Lewises, um, so you can tell us about Gouverneur Morris, and then you also have some, uh, just a few observations about the ratification process um, in New York, uh, led by Publius and their folks on the other side. So, so give us the, the New York take on the U.S. Constitution. Well, Governor Morris is also the grandson of Lewis Morris, and he's the half-brother of the Lewis Morris who signs the Declaration. So the, the Morrises are, are active, uh, like the Cuomos. They're an active political family. <laughs> Goes on for a long time. Uh, look, I love him. Uh, he, he too, You've written a biography. Yeah, yeah. He, too, had a peg leg. Uh, he was a ladies' man. He was a wit. Uh, he, he was brave. He'll go on after this to be... Uh, our, our uh, minister to France during the reign of terror, and he, you know, he sticks to his guns and holds his own when friends of his are being guillotined and writes it all in his diary. Fascinating writing. Uh, in terms of the ratification struggle, New York is a must-have state. Uh, the document says that if, when nine of 13 states ratify, it goes into effect. But they know they've got to have certain states. You have to have the biggest ones, which are Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. You also have to have New York, which is not so big yet, but it is clearly growing. It's also centrally located. If New York stays out, you know, you'll have New England and, and then the rest and this gap. And so there is a, a very lively press controversy about the ratification of the Constitution here. We've all read the Federalist Papers. They are the great um, blast on the pro-Constitution side, but there were also... And these are New York newspaper are, essays. Yeah, these are... In op the Zenger tradition. Yes, these are op-ed pieces. Um, you know, uh, Paul Krugman and David Brooks write 750 words uh, twice a week. These were uh, 2,000 words coming out three, four, and sometimes five times a week. So it's a, it's a quicker rate. But there were also... Uh, very eloquent and intelligent essays on the other side. And New York State is one of the places where there are actual riots. Uh, there's, there was a riot in Albany and one here in New York. Happily, no one was killed, but that just shows you how high the passions were. And Melanchthon Smith, who does play a little, see, the book has lots of names, and you, you think it's very important that we remember these people. Mm -hmm. Melanchthon Smith is part of the New York Manumission Society. He's many people think a leading anti-federalist, mm -hmm. federal farmer, he, in the end is going to be the swing vote and, and, and vote with the, the, the federalists. So these people, um, they might agree on some things, anti-slavery, George Clinton's there, and Al Alexander Hamilton, but they're, they're going to disagree on other mm -hmm. things like the Constitution. Right. Um, so uh, it's, it's a fascinating um, uh, story there. We're going to skip over the Monroe Doctrine just because there's not a strong New York angle to that. And now we're going to go upstate and you're going to tell me about Seneca Falls. Seneca Falls. This is another gap uh, to be plugged. And it's obviously the fact that uh, women mostly have not had the right to vote here. I say mostly because uh, in New Jersey from 1776 to 1807, women who met the property qualification could vote. And that was because the language of the first New Jersey Constitution spoke of inhabitants, not freemen. People noticed this. And there were enough women meeting the property qualification. Now, the, the, the joker in this deck is that married women 
their property belonged to their husbands. But if you were single or a widow and you met the property qualification, you could vote in New Jersey for those 31 years. And there were enough of these women that they had a name. They were called the petticoat vote. They were a recognized like block that, that the parties contended for. But that ended in 1807, so mostly women don't have it. And this chapter, the, the most important individual is a woman from Johnstown, New York, upstate, named Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And uh, her interest in politics, it's really from her youth, from her family. Her father's a judge. He served a term in Congress. She's, in effect, been his law clerk. Uh, she marries a man who is himself very involved in politics, in the politics of abolition. And then in 1840, she and her husband go to a worldwide abolition conference in London, where the issue is, are the women in attendance to be allowed to vote? And this becomes an argument, and the, the conference votes and says no, they shall not be allowed to vote. And then when this, this young American gets home, she says to one of her friends, why can't we have a conference on women's rights? And then she moves ultimately with her husband to a town called Seneca Falls, which is in the Finger Lakes. And there, one afternoon, she's having tea with some friends of hers. And uh, her life is kind of stressed at this point. Uh, she's, her, she and her husband are prosperous enough. Her father is you know, helping to support them. But she's got three little boys. Her husband's away politicking a lot of the time. She has to run everything. And uh, they're talking about such situations. And the husband of one of these women says, why don't you do something about it? So they decide we will have a conference on women's rights. And they, uh, they, they have to act quickly because there is a noted woman orator in the cause of abolition who is visiting Seneca Falls. She's going to be going home very soon. So they've got to put the word out fast get a venue, uh, they get a, a, a Wesleyan chapel, which is an anti-slavery section of the Methodist Church, uh, to hold their meeting in. They have a two-day meeting. Um, one of the more famous people who attends is Frederick Douglass. He comes down from Rochester, New York. He's the only known black person there, although there are 12 people of whom we know nothing, so there, there possibly were others. And what is interesting to me about this meeting is that even here, the issue of women voting was controversial because many of these women were Quakers. And Quakers by this point are thinking, well, you know, the whole political system is corrupt. I mean, it supports slavery. You know, it's, uh, why have anything to do with it? We, we should agitate outside politics, but to participate in it is playing the devil's game. And Elizabeth Cady Stanton says, no, if, if you're not voting, you're not represented, and you have no guarantees, no ways of protecting your own station and your own rights. And I think she's guided to this by the fact that her father was in politics and the fact that her husband was in politics, and she's been observing politics all her life, so she knows the importance of it. She wins this point, it gets in the document. Now, I'll skip ahead a lot of years, uh, obviously, the Civil War uh, sucks up everyone's attention. After the Civil War, Western states and territories do individually allow women to vote. 
and before the uh, 19th Amendment is passed, New York State, a year before, lets women vote. Elizabeth Cady Stanton has died, but there's one woman still surviving from the Seneca Falls Convention. She's 102 years old. Her name is Rhoda Palmer. She's lived all her life in Geneva, New York, in only two houses. She's only ever lived in two houses. But she went with her father to the Seneca Falls Convention. He drove her in a carriage, and then they drove back home. And when she's 102, she's taken in a car to the polls to vote. Uh, much as it pains me to jump over the Gettysburg Address, uh, but it doesn't have as strong a New York angle, but uh, tell us about the new Colossus, the, the statue and the plaque, which you say have to be understood uh, together. Yes. Uh, the, the Statue of Liberty was a gift to this country from France. And it was a gift from a particular slice of the French nation. You know, when you wring your hands over American politics, just look at France sometime. I mean, <laughs> they, they really have always had a tougher time than we have. But, you know, there have been reactionaries. There's, there's been a left that's so much further left than ours. But there has always been in France from the 18th century on a kind of centrist liberal strain which has honestly admired American republicanism and felt proud of its role in, in sustaining the American Revolution and pushed for republicanism in France. The Lafayette. Street. Lafayette is, is right. He's, he's the most famous of the beginning of it. Tocqueville is another one. Uh, so uh, during the Second Empire, which is uh, Napoleon's nephew becomes the second emperor of France in the middle of the 19th century, and it's, it's an authoritarian state. But uh, one of these liberals, a man named uh, Edouard René de Laboulaye, de la uh, he is very interested in the progress of the Civil War. He favors the Union side, and he's very interested in American emancipation. And after the uh, passage of the 13th Amendment and, and the Civil War Amendments, he thinks, wouldn't it be a great thing for France to give a, a present to the United States commemorating emancipation in the form of a colossal statue? And at the uh, luncheon at which he floats this idea, one of his guests is uh, Frederick Bartholdy young sculptor learning his trade in France. And Bartholdi, for his own reasons, is interested in monumental sculpture. Uh, he goes to Egypt. He sees where <coughs> you know, monuments of the ancient world are still standing. Uh, he writes some very interesting theoretical things about how you should do this. He says it's very important not to have too many details. You don't want to distract the eye. It should be, he says they should be as simple as a sketch. It's almost like advertising. Uh, these two get together when France uh, becomes a republic once again in 1870. Republicanism is now, for a time, the official position of the French nation, and they offer this gift to the United States. But they're not going to pay for the pedestal. They've built the statue. They've paid for the statue themselves. We have to come up with the money for the pedestal. And this takes a long time. And one of the projects to raise money is an album of uh, literary productions. And Bret Hart writes something, and Mark Twain writes something, and they have some poetry in there. 
And one of the poems is by a New Yorker named Emil Lazarus. And uh, she it is who, who writes a sonnet uh, about the statue, which she identifies as the mother of exiles. And she's, it's called the New Colossus because she's contrasting it with the Colossus of Rhodes, which is the ancient statue everyone would have thought of at the time. And that celebrated a military triumph. And she says, this is different. This is not about that. This is welcoming people here as a refuge. And this is what we should be proud of, that we have a free country, a country of liberty, and we're willing to welcome people to it. Mm -hmm. um, it gets put on the statue after she's dead. Uh, she, she leaves her poems and, and she tells her sister, who's her executor, you know, when you publish my poems, make sure the new Colossus is at the front. The sister prints it on page like 404. So <laughs> there seem to have been some family issues going on. <laughs> but, but she had a friend, another uh, blue stocking, who was a descendant of Alexander Hamilton, who lobbied to get the poem put on the pedestal where it is today. So that's how the statue and the poem meet. And I, I think the poem is a very effective piece of, of rhetoric. I think it is important that it is on that statue because that identifies who the mother of exiles is. She is the mother of liberty. You know, it's not just uh, you're broke or you're being <laughs> oppressed, you know, come over here, that'll stop. But you come over here and it will stop for good because this is a country of liberty and you're not going to have to worry about it happening again. So one of the exciting things about this book, and then I've got some great questions here to turn to, is um, this has, um, uh, since you're talking about filling gaps of a certain sort, gaps in liberty, responding to the exclusions of slaves or blacks or, or women um, early on, this book fills a gap in a way in your own oeuvre because you've been a journalist about the contemporary era, and you've been a great scholar of the founding and the founders. Um, and I kind of nudged you forward in time all the way to, to, to Lincoln with your great book, uh, Founder's Son. But I don't remember a lot of Rick Brookheiser sort of post-Lincoln, pre-Reagan. Um, and, and with the Colossus, you, you know, you have now that's that, that period. But, but you also actually, for the first time that I can recall, are really talking about that man, uh, the New Yorker, um, uh, who isn't always beloved by the National Review, um, or maybe he is, Franklin Roosevelt. Um, and so we're going to skip over the Cross of Gold speech since there's not a New York angle there as much. Um, and I won't let you talk about Reagan today, although you can later on tear down this wall. I want you to talk about this arsenal of democracy fireside chat, and then we'll take the questions. Well, there, there are um, three chapters in the book that deal with America and the world. And that may seem paradoxical because I'm talking about liberty in America, but I think there are instances when we have seen that our interests and our preservation of our own liberty is bound up with liberty elsewhere. And this was certainly what, what Roosevelt thought uh, in the, as the 1930s went on. 
and the world seemed darkened. Now, he was not elected president to be a foreign policy president. He was elected to deal with the Depression. But he was always mindful of foreign affairs. He, he had a lifelong interest in it. And he saw uh, the coming of, of the fascist dictatorships and, and the military regime in Japan. He saw these as bad things early on. And he took steps to prepare to deal with them. Uh, one of them was uh, putting two young officers in charge of the Army and the Navy, Admiral Stark and, and General George Marshall. And, and they were planners who developed plans to how we would fight a war if it came to that uh, against Germany, Italy, and Japan. Uh, the memo is called the Plan Dog Memo because in, in military code, dog stands for D. And there were four options. And like a good memo writer, Admiral Stark, who wrote this, you know, made his fourth and final one, the one that he really wanted and was trying to direct Roosevelt to do. And that was, you know, you hold the line in the Pacific, but your main focus is going to be on Europe and defeating Germany. And this is at a time when Germany has overrun uh, uh, Norway, the Low Countries, and France. And it is uh, uh, pounding England in its air war and, and also its U-boat its war. And uh, Stark tells Roosevelt, uh, if, if we uh, win, if Britain survives, we can win everywhere. If Britain goes down, we might not lose everywhere, but we could not win. So Britain, says Stark, has to be saved. Mm -hmm. And, and he's telling Roosevelt something that Roosevelt already uh, himself believes. So uh, Roosevelt uh, has his, his means of communication. Um, pre preceding presidents were speech makers. Uh, Roosevelt uses the radio to bring the podium into the living room. Uh, and he's given a number of what he calls fireside chats, uh, probably radiator chats. I don't know how many firesides there still were, but it was a way of intimately connecting with Americans, and his 16th uh, chat in December 1940 uh, is telling America that he wants us to be the arsenal of democracy in the defense of Britain. And he says, you know, we used to have oceans. The oceans are still there, but they're smaller now because transportation is quicker and better. Uh, he explains that from Senegal, which is a Vichy French colony, France has already fallen to Germany, to Brazil, is shorter than Washington, D.C. to Denver. Uh, he, he says the oceans are smaller than they were in the days of clipper ships. And we have to be mindful of that. Uh, he addresses elements of his, of his coalition. Uh, he says to Irish Americans, would it be possible that Irish liberty could survive if, if every other country in the continent went under? I mean, including your old enemy, Britain. Would the Nazis let you be some little exception? No. And he says to Italians, you know, you've made an alliance uh, uh, with Hitler, but you may find the embrace is, is not comfortable. <laughs> it's much too close. So he's trying to address these, these voting blocks that are, you know, in his corner, but maybe not disposed to take this piece of advice. And he, he knows that there has to be a months, months, many months buildup of American resources before we could take the axis on. 
and he's not saying we're going to go to war. In fact, he's denying that we're mm -hmm. going to go to war. But he's saying we are going to be the arsenal of democracy, which I think is tacitly saying that, because an arsenal is not a food pantry and it's not a bank. An arsenal is weapons. Mm -hmm. So if you're a neutral supplying weapons to one side, you're taking a side. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, Hitler is obviously very mindful of, of what's going on, and he tries to not provoke us for the longest time. He gives orders to his ships in the Atlantic, don't fire on American ships. And it's the Japanese, of course, who finally trip the wire. But, uh, but Plan Dog is followed. We, we, we prioritize the war in Europe, uh, even as we're doing the war in the Pacific, and it's VE Day happens before VJ Day. Uh, but the arsenal of democracy is a crucial step in that process. And, and had you written about FDR before? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, so, okay, uh, great questions. I'm going to fold some of them together. Um, uh, so this is one I'm sure you, you've thought. Oh, about. I, I want to give one detail. Uh, okay. when, when he was doing the arsenal, of, he was reading it, you know, behind a desk uh, in the White House. And of course, 500 radio stations. But actually, in the room were his political inner, inner circle, his mother, and Clark Gable and Carol Lombard. Um, I thought that was fun. So maybe that's the connection to Ronald Reagan, who did admire, who was a Democrat back yeah. then, and did, had, had a great did, Roosevelt did, imitation. I did not know that. Okay, so there's there's that the the, the, the obviously the missing link, um, Gable and Lombard, um, to Hollywood. Okay, obviously you've thought about this a lot. So um, were there what other documents uh, did you consider that didn't? quite make the cut and related to that and if you were trying to pick something since Reagan's speech you know what what might you have picked well I I do address this in in the epilogue and and my model is a wonderful book about the Constitution by Clinton Rossiter called the Grand Convention and mm -hmm. I, I I still say, if you're reading one book about the ratification, about the Constitution, mm -hmm. the writing of it, that that's the one. It's mm -hmm. terrific. Mm -hmm. But in it, he says, "You know how to hurt a guy." <laughs> <laughs> I'm teasing him. No, no, no. You've it's a great book. It's a great book. You've written many books about yeah, the Constitution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so. But in it, he's, but Clinton Rosser's book is outstanding. And in it, he says, "Could there have been a B team? You know, if these men hadn't come to Philadelphia, could we have found another set?" And he comes up with another set of people and same number from each state. Mm -hmm. you know, and he does admit, well, ben, Washington and Franklin are unique and they're irreplaceable, but I can replace everybody else, he mm -hmm. says. And similarly with these documents, obviously the Declaration and the Constitution, Gettysburg Address, you're not going to replace them, but you can find other documents. There's the Mayflower Compact. There's there's Frederick Douglass. What is the meaning of the Fourth of July to a slave? Um, there there's Martin Luther King at the Mall, uh, and I think that's a characteristic of a, of a free society or a society concerned with liberty that it has lots of these, that there are options to choose from, and the only thing I'd I'd add to that is. We shouldn't rest assured on that because it's not self-perpetuating. That's why I dedicated the book to the American people because we have to keep doing this. 
um, our fate is in our hands. We have great models, we have great inspirations, but it's something that always has to be done and has to keep being done. Now they say a statesman is a dead politician, and so maybe this will only be obvious to us in the future, but if you had to pick something uh, since Reagan, could you? I could, but I'm not going to say because I don't want, you know, I don't want to turn anyone off this story by ruffling a contemporary feather. And I'm also not write, and I'm also not writing a book of policy prescriptions. Okay, I'm not, I'm not going to do your work for you. This book isn't to hold your hand. This book is to show where we've come, and how we did it, and what's most important about this country. That's what this book is about. So I'm going to blend together three um, uh, questions really about America and the world. A um, uh, question about um, American exceptionalism and whether it still exists. I think you think it does. Mm -hmm. But then there's the second one, um, because much of the rest of the world since uh, uh, Roosevelt's triumph has actually begun to emulate the United States in certain ways. So um, are we less exceptional today because we've succeeded in spreading liberty and, and democracy? Um, and in particular, um, uh, how do Canada and Holland differ from the U.S. today, let's say, from a liberty point of view? You actually mention um, uh, them in, at, at times in, in your narrative. So, so Well, the, clo think? the closest I ever got to Canadian politics, Vanity Fair commissioned me to do a, a piece. This was years ago when the Reform Party was, was just getting going. And Graydon Carter uh, is a Canadian, so that's why he was aware of it. And I think that was also the reason he ended up not running it. Because if he did, people would say, oh, well, he ran it because he's a Canadian. So he, so he decided not to. But I traveled all around Canada. I liked the Canadians I met. I, I like Canadians. But they are different. They are different. There's no First Amendment. You know, they can really land hard on you, and you have no recourse. And it doesn't happen a lot, because Canadians are nice. You know, I like to say they're neurotics, we're psychotics. Uh, but, you know, there are lots of, pro there are protections that we have that they just don't. Um, have you actually looked at the Canadian Constitution, uh, the one adopted in the 1980s? No. It's very interesting. It basically begins by some reference to uh, you know, whereas a statute under Queen Victoria, you know, allows us to do this thing, we've got we've got permission from our parents to declare independence, um, and um, f from my point of view, um, I, I think I would say uh, so. Can Canada basically becomes independent because our hero Lincoln wins the Civil War and. Canada gives, uh, Britain begins to give up its, its um, New World ambitions once it's clear that America is not going to divide. So, so they don't, they owe their independence actually to us. They didn't fight for it in quite the same way. And I think that is to some extent of a piece with some of the things you're saying. The people who basically in, in the American Revolution didn't want to fight went to Canada. 
right. um, and or in Vietnam, you know, uh, and um, and even their independence actually, I think, is more product of of America's um, certainly civil their war. certainly their unity. And there's one of Trollope's uh, Phineas Finn novels. I forget which it is, but his job is the Canadian Pacific Railway, and it's and it's definitely in response to. The American Civil War and the fact that there's the world's first modern army all of a sudden on its southern border. So maybe we should unite, you know, these colonies we have here and there. So I think I've got time for a couple questions left. One. One. Okay, I'm going to have to pick. Okay. So um, then I'm going to have to pick. There was a great question about religious liberty in particular, but but I just can't resist this because. It, it pained me so much to not get to ask you about the Gettysburg Address, but one of you did. Um, so, what is there new to say about the Gettysburg Address? Um, and uh, go for it. Well, one thing that's, it's not entirely new. I think I was inspired by a, a wonderful book called Forge of Empires by Michael Knox Barron, an old friend of mine. But uh, a little noted, aspect of it is that this wasn't just about Americans and for Americans. The whole world was watching this. And Lincoln is mindful of this, and it, it's reflected here and there. Shall not perish from, from the, the earth. earth. From the earth. This is the big republic in the world, and if it falls apart and fails, that's going to send a lesson to the world. It's going to send a lesson to England which has begun parliamentary reform, but working men still do not have the right to vote. It will be an argument on the side of, well, let's not give it to them, because look what happened in America. It will be a lesson to France, which has had a Napoleonic restoration, and which has also set a Habsburg prince on the throne of Mexico. So uh, the fate of a Republican experiment is being watched not just by us. Right. All the reforms of the 1840s um, that have, have failed. And, and if we have uh, a regime in which people who lose elections are allowed to overturn that by force of arms, the world will have lost the last best hope of Earth. Yes, I think that is his theme. And, that, and whether that's new or not, I think it's a good note on for us on on uh, for uh, uh, for us to end on. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.